Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to episode 22 of the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Representative Ina Minharis. Uh, Representative Minharis represents District 124, which is sort of west along, uh, you know, 90, up from 90, 1604 area. Um, she was elected to a partially over term, really, in 2015, joined the legislature with only a month or so left, uh, went back to her, to her next full uh, full session and was named Rookie of the Year by Texas Monthly, even though I accidentally called it Freshman of the Year. It's been a huge accomplishment. You've been given some incredible appointments, some, I guess you call them recess appointments as well, regarding the judi- judiciary. Um, first, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. I'd like, I'm going to uh, remember this as lucky 22. There you go. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> repeating numbers are supposed to be a, a lucky thing. I didn't know this. It's a good number. Yeah. Um, okay. So I do a top 10 with everybody. I just want to get some color, some background information. When and why did you end up in San Antonio? Uh, law school, St. Mary's University School of Law. And I wanted to be, I wanted to practice in Texas. So Texas has one of the hardest bar exams, and I just wanted to take it one time and, and be done with it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good plan. Uh, born and raised in El Paso? Born and raised in El Paso. College El Paso? Uh, excuse me? College was in El Paso or undergrad no, at St. Mary's? College, college was at Notre Dame, uh, South okay. Bend, Indiana. Right. Okay. So, yeah. you know, South Bend is not that nice of a city. You know, when I was there, it was it was just a different type of place to be. We, I, I, I tell people when I got to Notre Dame, I didn't even really understand where it was located. I had no idea. I was just going to Notre Dame. I remember getting on the plane and kind of looking down and seeing <laughs> a lot of farm country and, yeah. and thinking, what the heck did I just get myself into? Uh, but we were pretty insulated. We really didn't go out into the city. They had the students really on campus. So we talked off air a little bit. Uh, Poncho Navarez and you went to law school together. Poncho and I worked a case, and we ended up in South Bend a lot. And <laughs> the campus is beautiful, but the surrounding town is not what you expect, which for me was the same as when I went to Yale for some depositions. Beautiful campus, not a really nice town. So I was surprised by no. it. No, it's not. And, you know, I haven't, it's been a while since I've been back, uh, you know, at the, it was interesting to see Mayor Pete Buttigieg was the mayor. So I, I'm curious. I would love to go back to see what he what he's done, what he did with South Bend. Yeah, since I, I would too. There. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have dogs. What kind of dogs and what are their names? Oh, the loves of my life. I've got three. So I've got my golden retriever. I named her Pino after my favorite wine. Uh, <laughs> I got Pepe, who's a GSP. And then I got Lily, who is my rescue. She's a mix of schnauzer, and I think she's part coyote. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up, we had a cat we were sure was part bobcat, so I get it. Uh, favorite hidden gems in San Antonio. You know, the last guest was King Anchovy, and he was certain there could not be anything he didn't know about. And I brought up somebody's favorite Filipino restaurant. So we've had some good additions. Any favorite hidden gems, things that you think sort of even us locals don't know about? My favorite restaurant in the world, Shishwan House off of Ingram uh, by Ingram Park Mall. That is the gem in itself. My favorite place to eat. I'm not, I haven't seen their books, but I'm partly sure that my house is partly responsible for them surviving COVID, <laughs> by the way. They, they delivered up to 20 miles and I was just right 
in the delivery zone. Oh, me too. Me too. I just, I just ordered from them on Friday and they're just, you know, Christina was the owner. She's, she's incredible. And it's just a great restaurant. They take care of their workers and employees. What's your favorite dish there? Uh, the hot pot, the dry pot, actually, I'm sorry, the dry pot and the green beans. And the cold noodles were shocking to me. I've never had cold noodles. Noodles. They were fantastic. You know, our delivery guy, um, we can only call him by his uh, name, Spicy Noodle. We weren't allowed to use his <laughs> real name because who knows what was going on with unemployment at the time. But right. um, which show best depicts politics as you have learned them to be? My guess, I would think Veep has to be it, but I, that's only a dream. You know what? It's so funny. <laughs> I really, I'm trying to think of, I don't, believe it or not, I don't watch political shows. Um, I am so wrapped up in Yellowstone. And I guess because it has its own politics of being ranchers and owning this incredible land in Montana. So, you know, yeah, I guess you could say there's, there's politics involved in that, but you got the good guys, you got the bad guys, you got, you got the ones that are about greed, you got the ones that want to do the right thing and it's a family owned ranch. So that's what I'm all into right now is Yellowstone. Is Yellowstone a Western feel or is it not? I think a little bit. Uh, Kevin Costner, he's the main character. Um, And you've got, you know, you've got that aspect of a family uh, of ranchers, uh, how they got the land. And and you're going to kind of figure out, we still don't know what what the the secret is in terms of how he got the land. You know, he didn't get it the right way. Um, And then you've got Native Americans that are in in the show, too. and, And one in particular that believes he stole that land from their tribe. Um, so yeah, I guess it's a modern day kind of Western feel. You're the second person to tell me I have to watch it and I click it on Netflix and it just looks like it's going to be a slow start. It's, it's so good though. Okay, all right. and, I, and I think, I think every female character in that show is like a strong woman too. And they got a leadership role. Okay. All right. Well, I'll <laughs> yeah. have to check it out because you're the second person in the, this week that's told me this. Uh, are you a reader? And if so, what are you reading? Uh, am I a reader besides legislation and, and, uh, and boring policy papers? Um, I am a reader. I, I, you know, there's different things that I, that I read. Um, I read a lot of motivational books. Um, I'm trying to think one in particular and I the, the author escapes my mind and I'm always, I'm always, if you give me a moment to look up my tweet, my Twitter, because I have them on, on my alerts. Um, but it's, it's, he's, he's faith-based and, and he just kind of gives a different perspective on life. And, but at the same time, he's not, um, he's not telling people how to live. He's not judgmental on people, right? Cause sometimes you think coming from a faith-based perspective that people tend to be judgmental and that you need to live your life according to a certain way. So his name is Bob Goff okay. and, um, I'm reading his newest book called dream big. Huh, and it, never it's heard easy of to follow. Yeah, he's wonderful. And I, I, I follow his books and he's just, he's just plain. He, you know, he, like I said, faith-based to the point, but non-judgmental. Max Lucado seems to walk that line too, in a really special way that so many people don't. Right. I agree. Yeah. I, I used to go to, uh, I used to go to his church, um, and, and just loved, uh, loved him. He wasn't judgmental and just would preach on a level that was present day. And, um, I just, I, I appreciated that about Max. Uh, I still, I still like to read his stuff. I've got a lot of his books here at the house. Yeah. Um, I, I read that you're really into Bravo. I love Bravo. And, and one of our previous guests, <laughs> Tim Maloney was one of the producers of Southern charm New Orleans. Did you know that? I, I knew that and I watched it. <laughs> I watched some of that. I mean, it was pretty terrible though. 
I look, I will admit, I, I'm not afraid to admit that's my escape. I watch all of those, those bad reality shows, um, just Which to have my favorite? escape from real life. Um, you know, I like the real housewife franchises. Okay. Um, I love Southern charm, but I like the one that's in, um, yeah. I like the one that's in the other, uh, what is it? Uh, Charleston. Charleston. Yeah. yeah. So Whitney and Tim did Southern Charm New Orleans together and Whitney comes out of here a lot and I'm not really into, I mean, I used to love VH1 reality shows, I'll admit it, but I wasn't into any of Tim's stuff and Whitney and I were at Soluna having margaritas and I made fun of them. Nobody watches that show. And I can't tell you probably 10 different people came up. This was season one of Southern Charm. 10 different people come up and said, Oh, are you Whitney? Well, if you, see, if you talk to Whitney, you tell him, I think his mom is fabulous. And I think she makes the show. <laughs> oh no. People will ask Tim to, if they can pay him so that their wives can go meet her. I mean, yeah, I didn't realize she was such a breakout hit. Yeah. His mom, she is a diamond and I think she really makes the show. Yeah. I love her home. I love her style. I love her wit. <laughs> And what does she call her breakfast martinis? She's got like a name for them. She has a name for them. But hey, I respect a woman that has a breakfast martini. <laughs> All right. We just found out Fiesta is getting canceled, but I've asked everybody, what's your favorite Fiesta event? Favorite Fiesta event. Look, I love to eat. Um, I would say going to uh, Oyster Bake, but we go off, we go on the off day where it's not like one of the first days that it's on early because to avoid a lot of the crowds, but... I love all of it. I love to eat. I love to drink. Um, it's just a fun time. Yeah, I agree. I'm pretty bummed about it, but it'll be yeah. back. Um, okay. So any surprising friends at the, at the, the Capitol for you? I always found the, the, uh, Scalia and RBG friendship to be sort of a strange pairing. I mean, is Sticklin your best friend? I mean, do you have a <laughs> friendship like that at the Capitol? You know, he's a friend. Uh, it's funny you mentioned him. Uh, yeah, believe it or not, freaking frack. Uh, you know what's so, what's so funny, and he's probably going to not appreciate me saying this, but, you know, I know Jonathan on a, on a private level. Um, so different than what he puts out there, the persona he puts out on Twitter. You know, we, we don't always agree, but, you know, believe it or not, yeah, we're friends. And um, I could talk to him about a lot of things and vice versa. Uh, underneath it, there is a person there, believe it or not, that has feelings. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, he's, he's, he's a friend. I think another one that I developed a friendship with, um, former Speaker Craddock. I got to know him because I was on, on his committee uh, this session and really just have so much respect and adore the man. I, I would bring him uh, bags of Snickers cause he loves, he loves chocolate <laughs> and uh, we got to know each other and, and uh, yeah, another good friend there. And he's just gotta be a font of knowledge about the, the capital and the legislator and the process and the players. He is, he is, he's got a lot of knowledge. Uh, you know, his wife is beautiful Nadine. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, I got to go to Odessa for uh, to go tour some, some uh, oil wells down there a couple months before the pandemic happened and got to attend an oil and gas state of the state of there in Odessa and, 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 visit, and got to sit with him and his wife. And, you know, they, they love where they're from. Uh, they're very oil and gas. Right. Um, but he, you know, she would tell stories about what it was like to be 
uh, the speaker's wife at the time at the Capitol and, and what went on there. And, and yeah, they got a lot of stories, but very dear people. He had a very tumultuous run as, as speaker, if I recall it. And now he's kind of got the best placed office in the Capitol and you rarely hear his name. It's funny because I tell people, they're like, Ina, you don't know what he was like when he was speaker. And I know what I know what I hear in terms of how he was very heavy handed. Um, but it, I guess I, I just I know a different Craddock now. <laughs> sure. Well, good. It's good to be able to look from a fresh perspective, too, and not carry, you know, resentment or any of that with you. Right. Yeah. Right. OK, so what brought you into politics? I must have been crazy. Well, so. I was at the time that I decided I was going through kind of a midlife crisis and I, and I will, I will mention his name cause he's my dear friend. I worked for Javier Espinosa, who was one of your guests. That's right. I worked uh, for his firm for a little bit and, you know, I think I'd already litigated like maybe 15 years and I was feeling just unfulfilled, not, not in terms of working for him, but I just felt like I wanted to do something different. Um, and decided to take some time off. And I thought maybe I'll go back back to school, get another degree. I, I just kind of felt like I, I was having this midlife crisis professionally. And at the time, my state rep went on to win a special election. So that was uh, Jose Menendez who went on to become a Senator and that opened up his seat. And I can't explain it. I'm trying not to sound hokey, but something kept pulling at me, uh, pulling at my heart. And so I started looking into what the heck a state representative does. Look, I had to go on Google and remind myself and figure out what exactly do they do? And I, it was all policy related, creating law and reading policy. And I figured, man, if I've litigated all these years in courtrooms for businesses, for people, for kids, why can't I do that at the Capitol and, and actually change things and make a difference? And so, you know, I took a leap of faith and, and decided to run for the seat and, and luckily I won. And in your 15 years of litigating, what did you do other other than work for Javier? Uh, I so I was a prosecutor uh, for Bear County. I did I prosecuted domestic violence cases. I prosecuted, uh, unfortunately, I prosecuted uh, cases where children were were victims of uh, sexual assault. So that was really tough. Did a lot of felony offenses, drug offenses, murders, um, and then left to do the defense side. And then while I was in private practice, I uh, started representing kiddos in uh, child protective services in, in the system as an ad litem, and then also represented parents who were facing termination of their parental rights. And then during that time, that's when I uh, met Javier and then went to go uh, work for him for a little bit doing labor law. So you've done prosecution, criminal defense, and then plaintiffs civil work as well. Exactly. Yeah. So when you decided to run for uh, Senator Menendez's seat, what had you had any political, were you tied into any of the political groups? Were you tied into your neighborhood? I mean, what was your sort of grass grassroots involvement if there was any? No. So really I, the only political, I, the only political exposure I had was I had also run for um, a county court bench, county court number five. I ran twice. This was at the time, I think the first time I ran was when Tim Johnson was on the seat and I nearly took him out. I lost by seven tenths of a percent that time. Jeez. And then he retired. <laughs> I was going to run again for that seat. And then it was when Obama was president. And that was when that it was midterm election time when that red wave came and just knocked out every single Democrat that was running for office or held office. Except for David so, Rodriguez somehow. 
Right. He survived that. Yeah. And, and so I thought, I thought I was done with politics that was heartbreaking. You know, it, it, it looked like it was going to happen and then just not having any control. Right. You were just, you were just at the bottom of the ballot and just, that was the political atmosphere at the time. Um, so I knew who, you know, in terms of who, who were the players with the, the local democratic electeds. Um, but I really decided to walk away from it because it, it left a bad taste in my mouth. So when I decided to run, you know, I really had not lived in the district very long. Um, I had lived uh, for some time in the South side off of Nogalitos. That's where my, where I'd, where I'd lived. Um, so came down and, and lived here. I was very new, very green. Um, and, you know, I just, I think what it was winning this election was really pounding pavement and knocking on doors. And I really think um, I was running in the race was a former uh, city councilwoman, uh, a firefighter who was active in the union, and then a gentleman who had run as a Republican all his life, but decided to run as a Democrat for the seat. I think it was because I was new and quote unquote untainted. I think that went in my favor. And I think people like that about me, that I was very new and did not have you know, a political background. Is that, uh, is your district considered far west side? Is that what you would call it? Uh, far west side, northwest. Cause we're, we are, we're part, I have SeaWorld and the food bank. So I've got part of Edgewood, part of Highway 90, a little bit of Port San Antonio, but I come over to Westover Hills, uh, like the newer part. We, we've got a lot of growth out here. Um, so I would say west, great, you know, northwest. So how much of that district is sort of the old west side neighborhoods because you know correct me if i'm wrong i've got to think there's really a hierarchy over there that if you're running and you haven't sort of checked the boxes as you come up through the system that there would be some blowback because you hear a lot of these sort of older communities and neighborhoods i mean there's a real like political machine hierarchy for people that are going to run for office did you run into that out there you know, I didn't run into that. Uh, it, it was it was unique. Maybe in the Edgewood part of that Edgewood area, that didn't know me very well. But it was funny because the the Edgewood area that has Port San Antonio called Thompson neighborhood, uh, I won that precinct huh. versus like Los Jardines. Uh, I didn't win that precinct, um, so there was a split. Um, but I'm telling you, when I came in, it was a special election. It just seemed to be a very unique time that I really feel that a lot of the constituents in the district really wanted someone new that had not been tainted by politics, so to speak. How long had Senator Menendez held on to that seat? Ooh, I want to say maybe 20 years. He'd oh, been here really a long, that long? Okay. time. He, he was a councilman before. And then as a state rep, have been a state rep for a long time. So it just it looks was so about, young. Yeah, a long time. Okay. Um, do you still, I mean, we're going to get into your work as a legislator in a second, but legislators have other jobs. Are you still a practicing attorney? You know, I, I, I take very few cases because it's my whole life is devoted to, to what I do. Uh, and I travel extensively for my committees. So I, I represent a couple of small businesses with their contracts. And then every now and then if a firm wants to bring me in on a case and I am able to, I will, I will jump in and help out 
especially especially out of town firms that that don't know how to maneuver through our presiding courts in Burr County. <laughs> you know, I've I've been hit with a legislative continuance in South Texas many <laughs> times when all of a sudden a state rep ends up on my case. Right. For, for those who don't know, if you're a legislator and you're on a case, you get an automatic sort of extension throughout the legislative session. So some defense firms, probably plaintiffs firms too, will sometimes pick up a rep and get their 180 days. Yes, and get some have some help there. <laughs> so when you decided to run, you said you, you Googled to see what the job is. I'm sure you went in with your priorities, but what were sort of the priorities at the time you decided to run that you really wanted to focus on? And I guess that means what did you think San Antonio needed? I think, so the priorities that I ran on were, were transportation infrastructure, because in this area, we were having going through tremendous growth. And I felt that people were tired of being in congestion. I was one of them. I sat in my car longer than I was working, trying, you know, traveling place to place, uh, jobs, workforce development. We didn't have a lot of uh, job opportunities, especially ones that offered a, a living payable wage, sure. right? Um, and then the other was definitely public education in terms of, of funding and, and bringing up, helping bring up our, our public schools up to par. Uh, those were the three that I really uh, hammered on. And then I also included, you know, I'm a daughter of a veteran, uh, come from a family of, of Army vets. And so uh, recognize that we have mil- a number of military uh, active duty and veterans that live in, in my district. And so definitely talked about the need to continue uh, pushing uh, veterans issues and active duty military issues as well. So you came in, uh, you won your special election, you were able to go to the 2015 legislative session with only a month left. I think Mm -hmm. as part of TTLA, we went by your office then. And if I recall, you were really just getting your bearings right. I mean, was it drinking water out of a fire hose, basically? It was, it was, I mean, there was no time. I had to get a staff very quickly. And this is going in there. It's the last month of the legislative session where everybody's trying to push their legislation. There's deadlines, there's timelines. You're on the floor until, you know, all hours of the morning working. Um, I just observed a lot and, and learned very quickly. It was kind of a situation where you either learn or you're just going to get lost. So who, did you know any of the legislators when you went there or was it sort of who you were officing next to that you, you got some guidance from or sort of were able to ask questions from? Well, definitely Poncho. Poncho was one, uh, very, very supportive. And then at the time, Representative Marisa Marquez out of El Paso, she was a Notre Dame grad. So I was, I think, three years ahead of her in college. And so I took care of her and then she paid back the favor and took me under her wing. Uh, there were also, I mean, you, I will tell you when I got there, um, the members who had been there the longest, uh, some Republican, uh, very helpful, uh, that were just, you know, open arms and, and, and everyone was just very, very welcoming. And you know what, if you have a question, they're there to answer it and they're going to be honest with you. And so I, I just felt like I was welcomed. It was like the new kid on the block that came in like a breath of fresh air during a very contentious session. Well, Pancho always told me, he said, really, that he said, if you really look at it, 99% of, you know, all the legislation passes in a bipartisan effort. And then you have the like hard charging political hot potatoes that everybody pays attention to in the news. The social issues. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Um, so what did you think you learned in that first session that you brought over to the second? Did you, did you feel like you even had time to breathe and digest anything? I didn't. I think what I learned, I, I learned right away just to 
watch and learn. Um, one of the things that I, that I took to heart that was explained to me, don't get on the microphone just to talk on the floor. If you just want to get up there and grandstand, that's when people lose respect for you and you make enemies that way. Um, I learned the processes very well. Um, asking questions, getting up there, being, being active on debate. Um, and then, you know, when I caught, got, came home, I had already drawn an opponent. So it was like, come home after a month, put on town hall, start campaigning again, figure out, you know, get through the primary. So it's, I didn't have a chance to breathe. And I think it was like that for two cycles for me. And just now as much as, much as I don't have an opponent this time, the issues, the work never stops. And it's, it's constantly working, working, working. But I, I love it. That I knew what I was signing up for. Did you have any 2015 recess appointments in that between 2015 and 2017 committee assignments? You know, from what I recall, I think, I oh yeah, I was put on an environmental committee by uh, Speaker Strauss. It was an interim committee. It was an environmental committee. We only met one time, which was just odd to me. Um, and essentially, I remember that hearing it was about, it was the attorney general coming to testify about how he was essentially attacking every uh, measure the Obama administration tried to do on behalf of protecting our environment. <laughs> so we had one hearing and that was the end of it. There, there was really no meat to that committee. Um, and then Mike, the committees I was already on that, that Jose Menendez was on that I was replaced to serve um, uh. on those committees. <clears throat> those continued meeting during the interim too. So it was state affairs and transportation. Okay. So you just stepped into his shoes in that interim or the, uh, right. the remainder of his term. Right. Okay. So 2017 was the first full session you worked. You were, you were named rookie of the year by Texas monthly and Texas monthly gives out great awards, <laughs> uh, furniture, best, worst, uh, cockroach award recently for someone. Um, you were, you were named rookie of the year and sometimes that's multiple people, but f for your session, you were the only one named rookie of the year. Uh, they pointed out how you sort of guided well-placed amendments through the process. I think my understanding is an amendment is a very small victory, um, that can add up over time. What was sort of your, what was sort of your legislative philosophy in terms of trying to get movement or trying to get some small victories in light of the fact you're really kind of a first term elected and you're in the party that's out of power? You know, sometimes what you do is you may have a piece of legislation and, it, and it's really hard to pass a bill. You might find that you can't get any traction to get your bill moving so you can change and transform your bill into an amendment that you could put on legislation on the floor. And so... I, one of the things it was just, it, it seemed to be the stars were aligning since I have such an interest in, in uh, foster care. Uh, Speaker Strauss had asked if I would get on a, a, a work committee uh, that he put together by partisan legislators to start working on reforming the foster care system. At that time, leadership determined uh, that foster care reform was going to be a priority because a federal judge had ruled that the Texas foster care system is a hot mess. It really, it truly is. And so one of the, the biggest uh, amendments that I recall that I got on the budget, I stripped money away from the attorney general's office and fully funded foster care for, for the biennium. And I got support from R's and D's. That was crazy that that amendment went through very easily. <laughs> um, so that was a big win. And then I, I, and I'm trying to remember, and then I, what I did too, um, there was a transfer in terms of transportation, 
there had been an issue for some time where people, so say you, uh, you use your toll tag, you use toll roads, and maybe you sold your vehicle and for some reason title didn't fully transfer. And so that person that now had your car was not paying its tolls, right? So they were going to collections. There seemed to be a large number of that, of, of people who were getting bills that they owed all of these tolls. And so these people, these consumers were trying to go to TextDot and say, hey, you got the wrong person. TextDot could have cared less. It was like, pay us this money or you're going to go to collections where you're not going to be able to renew your driver's license. So I had put in an amendment that essentially did away with TextDot being able to do some tolls. <laughs> I, stripped that, I stripped that money. Um, and that was another bipartisan win. Like the Republicans were loving it. And 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 so I, rem- I remember that they were saying like, Ina, how do you do this? How do you get the whole house to go with your amendments? And, and it just, I just, I think I just happened to find some issues that we could all find common ground on, but they were meaningful. I was able to sneak them into legislation and really make an impact. So, you know, TxDOT wasn't happy with me, um, but hey, it helped a lot of consumers who were getting screwed. And, and how did you... How do you figure out how to do that? Is that, did your staff teach you a lot of this? I mean, did you have a chief of staff who walked in, you know, gray hair and been there a while type deal? Well, it was chief, it was having a good staff. Look, in order to be successful as a legislator, you have to have good staff because they carry you. So it's, you know, we would meet as a team and then they could identify certain areas and say, let's try to put this amendment here. And then I would take it and, and run with it. So it's, it's having a staff that all work really well together that could recognize how to make that legislation move. And it's just, it's just strategy. It's like games of Thrones, game of Thrones, <laughs> figure out which family you got to get close to figure out which family you've got to screw over <laughs> and then, you know, get your win. Well, it sounds like any opportunity you had to take money away from government is how you got the R's to join you. So that's a right, good lesson right. learned. Um, 2017 ended rookie of the year, 2019, you came in, you really took sort of the mantle on a San Antonio issue and you got David's law passed. Uh, that was a big win for you. It was a big win for San Antonio and the family that was affected. Tell us what, what David's law is. Did y'all, did y'all craft that based on any other states versions of this bill? Was it sort of whole cloth? How did that process happen? That was a tough process. So, you know, David's law, there were no laws in the books to deal with, uh, how do we handle children that are being cyber bullied at school? And that, that, this was new territory. Uh, we, I, I don't believe at the time there was anything in the books and, and, and we didn't have anything to really follow because usually we can look at other states and say, hey, we can take that bill and let's try to fix it in terms of how can we tailor it to Texas. Um, you know, the, what, was, what was fortunate, um, the Molek family, whose son committed suicide as a result of being cyber bullied in, the, in Alamo Heights, they were constituents of Speaker Strauss. So... Uh, you know, he was on board to make sure that something got done. Um, it was talking, it was is getting everybody, all the stakeholders who had relationships with the governor and the lieutenant governor to get buy-in from them. Um, and then it just happened that I don't know what it was. Maybe these types of cases had never been brought to light, but all of a sudden media was talking about children who were taking their lives, not just children, teenagers who were taking their lives because they were being relentlessly cyber bullied. Uh, throughout the state of Texas, some outside of Texas. Um, and it wasn't easy as you know, once you, you file a bill, I, in terms of the house side, I have to sell it to 
149 other legislators. I, and, and these are state reps that come from different parts of Texas, rural parts of Texas that may not understand that this is a problem. Parts of Texas where there's no internet. <laughs> um, maybe they don't feel that this is a real problem that should be legislated, right? So First Amendment issues. And, and it, was, it was a lot of discussions, a lot of uh, coming together. Um, it, it was a heavy, heavy lift, but I was very uh, strategic in who I wanted to be my joint authors on the bill, uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, that I knew could help me do the lifting. And with Speaker Strauss behind the bill, I mean, we were just able to move it and, and it, it, it took a village. And then, you know, getting it to the Senate side for them to, to finish off that bill. Who were the biggest stakeholders against it? Was it civil liberties, First Amendment people? It was uh, the, the uh, Freedom Caucus. And I, mm. I'll have a story about that. It was the Freedom Caucus. So the super, super right uh, that didn't like it. Um, the Appleseed, because they, were, they felt that it would criminalize children. Um, but, you know, we made some changes because I, I did not want this to be a pipeline uh, from school to, to prison for these kids or school to jail. Um, so what, what happened? Yeah, it was it was the it was the Freedom Caucus who very much First Amendment and they were going to try to kill the bill. But what ended up happening when I talk about the importance of having relationships across the aisle, we the day that it was coming on the floor, I can't remember there was a two bills before mine that upset 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 the Liberty Caucus, the Freedom Caucus. So the Jonathan Sticklin, you know, the, the members Kane. that make up Briscoe Kane. Something happened where they all went outside to have a press conference because they were really upset about something. And so they were, their attention was diverted from my bill. And, my, and Representative Lyle Larson, my colleague, kept them busy outside of the House floor. And we were able to take my bill out of order and hurry it up and bring it up out of order. And we passed it without them being present. <laughs> So they couldn't pull, you know, they couldn't do a point of order. They, they, it, we were able to get it done. And when they walked in, they realized that they had missed the boat, so to speak. But the funny thing is, uh, I think they had recorded no votes later on the third reading, which is, I mean, the bill was already on its way out. And they were getting calls from families, angry, angry, that they voted no. So they went and switched their votes to yeses in support of the bill. And they <laughs> wanted me to, like, make a statement kind of defending them, which I wasn't going to do. How bizarre. <laughs> Yeah. Um, was there a lot of that in, in the legislature, just a lot of grandstanding without any, without really any care for the substance, just to sort of appease and not, not just the, the freedom caucus, but among all members, I mean, just to appease sort of a fringe group. Yeah, I think there is, I think it depends on, on the, on the topic. Um, sometimes a lot of them are, are afraid of, of being primaried, uh, sure. drawing an opponent. So, um, it's funny on certain issues, they'll go, you know, they, they want their time on the mic because look, you're, you're always recorded when you're on the mic on the house floor, when you're making arguments, you can take that footage now and you can make a commercial out of it. Uh, so, so tell me the difference between the back mic and the front mic. Okay. Front mic, which is the front of the house is where you're presenting your bill. The back mic is where legislators get to ask you questions about your bill, debate you because they hate your bill. So there's just parliamentary procedure of when you use the front mic and then you got to run and get to the back mic. So front mic can be multiple people though. Does the sort of sponsor of the bill have to invite them up to speak? 
Yeah, you can. And, and, and usually you will have, sometimes you need a little help and you can pass it off to maybe your joint author who may have a little bit more knowledge in one area of the bill to help you out, um, you know, on the bill and explaining it. Okay. Last session, you were on the appropriations committee, which is one of the most powerful committees in the house. Um, you were also on the redistricting committee. Do we run a redistricting committee every session? Because redistricting is technically this term, right? It's technically this term. It, it's every, it's when the census is done. Uh, so what it's every, what, 10 years 10 or years. so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right now, unless Tom uh, delay shows up and decides for a mid, you know, mid 10 year redistricting. Exactly. So the issue we're having right now is we were supposed to have our census completed. I believe the results were, are due in March, but now with the pandemic, we don't know if Congress is going to do some kind of extension that's going to throw us off from being able to do the redistricting. Gotcha. Push it off later. Well, what work did y'all do last session on redistricting if we didn't have census numbers? So all we did was, uh, we heard possible legislation, uh, from members that, so we had hearings on bills like uh, represent my, my dear friend Victoria Nyave and I believe uh, Donna Howard uh, had bills calling for an independent commission to draw the lines where legislators should not be drawing lines. There should be an independent uh, impartial commission, uh, you know, and, and how it is that we can come up, what are the rules to eligibility of the commission so that they can draw the lines. And, and I think another, another bill was whether inmates, so you may, have, you may have someone that lives in San Antonio gets in trouble and it gets moved uh, to do TDC time at a prison. They're not counted in San Antonio, they're counted for population purposes uh, there at that prison where it's huh. located. So there's okay. different, there are different issues on how you count somebody. So that's, that, that's some of the stuff we were listening to. And you'll have a whole new set of committees this upcoming session. We, we will. Um, right now, we're, we're, we're going to have a new speaker. Our, our, our you know, current speaker got in a little bit of trouble, so he's not coming back. Um, we're, you know, and and if, if, the House, if the Democrats win the majority and we take over the House, we may have a new Democratic speaker. So that means we may have all new committees sure. starting January. But you're actually working on something that's pretty near and dear to me right now, and it's a select committee on judicial elections. <laughs> Right. I mean, selection. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or election selection. Yeah. But it's a, it's a, it's a group <laughs> of legislators. It's a group of lawyers and it's been appointed by Abbott, I think. And y'all are supposed to give recommendations to the governor's office on whether you think let's keep the current system of electing judges in place or let's move to some sort of election selection process. Is that a fair? Uh, yeah. So essentially it's like, it's like proposing Oh, yeah, it, it's, you know, do our elections work as they currently are? Should judges be maybe elected in a nonpartisan basis? Should we just not have elections and have a governor appoint? Uh, what about retention elections? Yeah, we're, we're delving into all these possibilities. Um, I think it's going to be up to the voters to decide how they want to do this, because I, I don't believe that. I think that people should be electing their judges. It's, it's what is the method? Right. right. And so there's, there's a lot of good discussions going on. Um, do I, I don't know if, if, if there's really going to be a change in how we do things because we got, because of the pandemic, we've got the economy to worry about, uh, continuing to funding our schools. 
we got to we got to talk about, uh, you know, redistricting is another issue. So there's going to be just there's there's so much need right now. I don't know if this is going to come into play, but I are don't want to say meeting? that it's not. <laughs> are y'all still meeting and taking testimony? We are. We're okay. meeting by Zoom. So uh, okay. we have a we, we, we just had a couple of hearings already by Zoom and then we've got a public hearing by Zoom that's going to happen in Corpus. So we're going to have public hearings. There's going to be one in San Antonio, but they haven't set the date on that one yet. We're going to see how how everything runs in Corpus via Zoom. You know, this didn't seem to be an issue until Republicans had a lot of losses at the judicial level. So you kind of wonder how, how much it's a principal fight and how much it's a, hey, we might be losing benches kind of fight. And hopefully that's yeah. all getting fleshed out within the committee. Yeah, well, there had been there had been prior bills. So other sessions, there has been discussion, but never really truly acted on until this session. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't have there, to was say why. there was it a commission happens. form, but they never met. <laughs> <laughs> of, course. of course, there was. OK, right. so, uh, you know, now I'm just going to ask you some nerdy politics things because I think it's interesting. <laughs> are you getting calls for people that are already starting to advocate their run for and no names, but their speaker race run? No, I, I think, no, I, I, I hear rumors, but I, you have to be careful, right? Because if you're going to, if you're intending to run for speaker, you've got to file some forms with ethics. You've got to file your intent uh -huh. because if you're out there trying to get some support and you're reported, you can get in a lot of trouble with ethics. Uh, okay. So I think right now, um, I think also people are playing, keeping their cards close to their chest because they want to see what's going to happen with the November election as well. When do you think uh, people will start announcing after Ooh, the election? Right after November no okay. election. All right. Yeah. Um, are you are you involved on any of the political side of things? Any you know, go to D.C. and you've got the D Triple C and a lot of electeds are involved in the electing more Democrats. Are you involved on the politics side or really just your function as a policymaker? Um, you know, when called upon, I will I will definitely help. Uh, right, you know, right now because of the pandemic. I'm just all, I'm just focused on the district and my policy. And I, that's just the policy nerd in me too. I just feel like I, I, right now I need to be focused on my constituents, focused on policy. I have to be on a lot of calls uh, regularly. Um, and so that's where my focus is. But of course, as you know, now that things are picking up, if, if needed on the, on the politics side, I'm going to do everything that I need to do to help. Cause uh, yeah, we need a new president. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've already gotten hit up by uh, Michael Watts, who was also on the show about uh, Joe Biden donations. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I think everybody's paying attention. Um, are the legislators having any involvement in Abbott's COVID response policy crafting? I mean, I see on Twitter, everybody seems like they're completely cut out and he's not listening to anybody. Is your experience that that they're sort of taking the position that electives, electeds don't have a big role in this response. Are they asking y'all for input? Is there any involvement? No. Um, you know, initially when things were happening, as things, you know, started escalating, was it like end of February, March? That's when start, things started happening. We would have regular calls, but we weren't allowed. It really is true. We weren't truly allowed to ask questions. Then as they evolved, as, as the months were coming, he would want questions ahead of time, but we never knew, we didn't know what was gonna be mentioned on the call. So he would want the questions at a certain time frame, and then the deadline would pass and then he would have, a, have some press conference revealing what it was he wanted to do 
And then we'd have the call, but we could not ask, ask questions pertaining to what he just released. So it's, it's, it's been a lot of frustration where we're not, we're not keyed in. We're not keyed into what decisions he's making. Um, It's frustrating. And then now I will, I will tell you, like, I've been surprised to find out within the last month, you know, he had a call with the Republican legislators. He's not, he didn't include the democratic caucus in that. So they're, they're very behind the, behind closed doors. I mean, that doesn't even make any sense. No, it's frustrating. It's a, it's a virus. You know, it is. Um, I want to ask you a few things. So I remember whenever sort of the, the shift happened in Texas, I've always been kind of a politics nerd about it all. And it seemed like for many sessions, it was red meat Christmas for Republicans in Texas. That seems to have shifted away in which the red meat, um, you know, really just caustic legislation that is meant to appease sort of uh, the fringe uh, Republican voter, um, not the mainstream, but sort of the fringe voter who always votes. Um, that seems to kind of have lost a lot of its volume at the Capitol. And now it seems like that all the legislators are tar- starting to take up actual substantive real things the state needs. Are you seeing that? Or are you seeing that maybe it's just a slowdown and these red meat issues are going to uh, get traction again? Or are you seeing just a shift politically that means we're going to start legislating from the center more? No, I think the last election cycle, the voters spoke loud and clear and scared the heck out of my Republican colleagues. And because of that, let me tell you, teachers were vocal. I mean, it, it's astounding because every the session since I started, we always had to fight against vouchers, even the discussion on vouchers. Oh, yeah. Well, now my Republican colleagues who were so pro-voucher were all about public education. We're all about taking care of our teachers. Uh, and then, and then, even the tone of the governor when he would have he would have his, his state of the state uh, address, and I would hate hate sitting through that because he was very I mean the vitriol he would talk about anti immigrant I mean just attack attack attack, and then this last time he was all about kumbaya, wanting to work with everybody, public education. So it's vote the voters really made an impact, and so. I see now, right now, that, you know, it may, those fringe issues may come back around again, but it's going to be the voters that we're going to have to put that in check. Yeah, I mean, to me, I'm a big, big proponent of public schools. Both my parents are school teachers, and to me, it's always seemed like the rural Republicans have been the only saving grace on this voucher issue, which brings me to another issue that, that is sort of something I have a hard time wrapping my head around among progressives. Uh, and that's the rise of charter schools. And San Antonio, for some reason, save New Orleans, seems to be this hotbed of charter schools, which the public, the public school administrators here do not like, but our city seems to really like. What is sort of the, where do you see the trajectory of charters going based on Austin? You know, I think they just granted charters for three more or three more schools in San Antonio and Austin. And it seems like we're moving more into that instead of further away. Are you seeing that trajectory slowing down or sort of that's the way things are going? I think that's the way things are going. I don't see things uh, slowing down. Um, you know, for my district alone, I've got uh, idea. I've got harmony. Um, I think great hearts just came in. We've got a lot coming in. Um, but my concern was, you know, we had one school, uh, charter school carpet diem that came in and failed. Um, and so, 
you know, you've got, you've got some charter schools that, that are performing. They can, they are having some success. The students are doing well. Um, but again, it, I'm seeing an explosion coming in, right, of other charter schools and some that I've never heard of. Like I get, I get uh, emails sometimes of an intent for a charter school to come in San Antonio. I think the delegation gets them every now and then. Um, but, you know, some that I don't even, I'm not, I don't know, I don't have a relationship with. But uh, yeah, it, to me, it's they're, they're imploding in San Antonio. And, and, and unfortunately, you got, you got to fight over funding. Accountability standards are different between public and charter schools. And so um, that's not going to end. But uh, for me, at the end of the day, I got to think about these kids and making sure that they got the resources that they need, because I want them to be successful. I want them to be thriving citizens, you know, and, and educated when they take over leadership of the state. Um, and so I think we've got to have some hard discussions and, and real discussions, but yeah, we've got, we've got a lot of schools coming in and, and, and some, I just, I just don't know, which worries me um, based on the fact that, like I said, I've had a school fail um, in my district and, and, and that wasn't good. Well, I mean, the statistics and the science and the data just sort of flesh out that they're not objectively better really in any way. Um, but, mm-hmm. but they, they're well-funded, their marketing's great. Their administrators are paid great. They take good right. talent from public schools. I mean, my real question is how have they convinced sort of progressives to jump on this bandwagon who have really always been sort of the, the lions defending public education. I mean, what, what has happened that has made that sort of come together to where the progressives and liberals are big, you know, supporters of charters. I just don't understand it. I don't know. I I think, I think what it is, is, you know, they're able to organize, they're able to put resources to nonprofit lobby type groups uh, that, can go and spread their wings, so to say, and 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 talk to parents, talk to uh, electeds. Yeah, true. You know, that's that's their job. That's yeah. their job to to bring them on their wagon, right? And so they have those resources to go do that. Versus, you really don't have a, a public school that has the ability to go to go neck to neck with that. No, and they have CEOs that were getting paid eight hundred or seven hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, there are some of these things that should drive people crazy, and it just seems to keep happening here. Which is, right. I mean, I have one right two blocks from here, and I didn't even know it existed. Uh, right. What What are your planned priorities moving into the the twenty twenty slash twenty one session? So I I'm going to continue my work with foster care. Um, that's a big passion for me. Um, there's a lot of even though we, we did some work to improve the system, uh, it's, there's still a lot more work to be done in, 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 in that area, um, especially in terms of maybe some in investigations of, uh, of facilities that, that have these foster care kids that are not uh, properly caring for them. Um, foster care youth aging out of the system, not getting all the resources they need so that they can be successful if they move on to college and into the workforce and that's another area. Uh, continuing my work in transportation. Uh, I'm always, I, I'm just, I love that area. I'm trying to figure out possible funding solutions. Um, continuing to work on the budget. Uh, I want to make sure that our public schools continue to be funded. There's just going to be a lot of work, but um, in that area, in terms of uh, foster care, I always will continue my work there. Um, what is the committee that handles foster care? Uh, human services. Okay. All right. So you, you, you would hope to be part of that at the end of it, but the, the speaker kind of decides all that, right? Yeah, the speaker, the speaker will decide. So he, he will, 
he will ask you, uh, he'll, he'll give you a form and then you fill out what are your choices? What are your dream committees? Um, and then you visit with him and, and sometimes he tries to give you what you may want. And then, but you know, he's got to also base it on seniority. There's been some reps that have been there a long time that want a coveted uh, committee. So they're, you know, they're, they're choices that he has to make or she, maybe, maybe there'll be a she next, next session. Um, but technically you, you get to ask for what you want, but you may not get what you want. Okay. And that brings me to my next point you talked about, and I was going to talk to you about this anyway, you talked about Yellowstone having a uh, real strong women. You talked about the potential for a female uh, speaker. Um, who are, do you have any sort of women role models that you sort of look to? Um, because, you know, in to some extent you're a trailblazer, you know, the capital is very male. Uh, it's very white and male. It's getting different. Um, but it has predominantly always been white males. Uh, any of the famous Texas women, Barbara Jordan and Richards that you sort of think, man, what a, what a legend. Those two are Queens in my book. Uh, (laughs) yeah, my husband was lucky enough. He had Barbara Jordan as his professor at the LBJ school. And he talks about what he learned from her. He still remembers, uh, lessons that he learned from her that he's, he takes with him to this day. Um, and Richards, oh, I mean, she's, she's a queen. Um, (laughs) I think for me right now in the legislature, uh, I always look up to Symphonia Thompson. She, she's been the longest serving woman, uh, African-American in the house. Um, I've learned a lot from her. And also I would say Donna Howard is another one. She's part of the Travis County delegation and been there quite some time as well. And, and I think those, those two um, very talented. And then I would say Sarah Davis, a Republican out of the Houston area uh, you know, pro-choice, uh, pro-LGBTQ, and she's a Republican. Um, those three, I think, could definitely be be the next speaker. I mean, Sarah Davis might be the only true middle-of-the-road purple elected left, it seems like. Every year, she gets a Republican challenger. She's in a pretty Democratic di- – she gets a Democratic challenger. She's in a pretty Democratic district, and she hangs on every year. She does. She's, she's tough. She's tough, and I admire her that she sticks by her principles, and she doesn't let – anyone intimidator, uh, strong voice. She, and on, and on Twitter too. I mean, to me, she's, <laughs> she's not, uh, she's pro tort reform. So I've never been a huge right. fan, but on those other issues, it's, it's great to have somebody that's got the sort of guts to step outside of your electeds. Another person who's, who's pretty moderate as well is, is representative Larson, uh, here in San Antonio. I wanted to ask you, do cities, Texas has always had sort of a strange, uh, congeniality in DC in which until recent years, Texans voted for Texas. Do you see that in the capital where the cities will coalesce around the city issues regardless of politics? Or is that division among political lines made people forget where they come from? Oh, it depends. I, I think, uh, yeah, sometimes, yeah. You know, there was there are political lines that are drawn and in terms of local control, right? Um, that's always gonna be a fight. I think it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, they the capital leadership always wants to strip local control. But now that we're in a pandemic, it seems that they want to give local control because they want to wipe their hands off of making any decisions and mandates. Now, when Republicans, when Republicans were out of power, that was one of their top three priorities was local control. Right. Then when they they come into power, (laughs) right. They want to strip it. But again, why? Because a lot of our, Urban cores are all led by Democratic yeah. mayors. <laughs> Does the San Antonio delegation get along pretty well for the most part? 
Oh, we do. Yeah. We do. I mean, knock on wood, you know, we, we get along very well. There's times that we're not going to agree, but for the most part, we all work together. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, not, not all delegations are like that. Um, I always like to end these to know a little bit more sort of about your involvement in the community. Obviously you're an elected rep, but are there any nonprofits or charities or mentoring groups that you find yourself uh, more involved with than others and that you want to maybe mention? Uh, you know, the food bank is near and dear to my heart. You know, they need a lot of help right now. They, they, they've been a gym in terms of, of providing food to a lot of our families in need during this pandemic. Meals on Wheels is another one. Uh, they're a wonderful organization. Um, I think those two really are the ones that uh, are near and dear to my heart, but also the Children's Shelter of San Antonio. They do incredible work uh, for our youth. And uh, so those three on the top of my list. Eric Cooper was on the show and I joked, he's, he's kind of got that Mr. Rogers quality. There's something, I don't know how to describe it. Like you want to hug him and give him all your money. I mean, he's just, yes. he really believes in what he does and he is a special human being. He's a good person and he truly, he truly cares about what he does. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think, I think I wanted to cry two or three times while hearing him <laughs> tell his story about how passionate he is and why he loves what he does. Uh, mm-hmm. Ina, uh, you have an election coming up, but you're uncontested. Right. Do you maintain a, a website that you use for district outreach or anything like that? Sure. I have, uh, the campaign is, uh, vote the number four, Ina, INA.org. And then you can, uh, look me up. You can just do a general state representative, Ina Minjades, and, and it'll connect you over to the state website with all of our information. Uh, you can even see the bills that I've passed and worked on, on that site as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Congrats again on Rookie of the Year. And really, congrats for just being an effective legislator in a time when that seems very hard for people to do, even level-headed people, because of the politics. But you've somehow figured out how to straddle that line. And I know everybody I know that knows you is very proud of you and glad that you're in our camp and glad that you're working in Austin. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was good to see you. Yeah. After next session, maybe come back on and we'll do a, you know, rehash the session. I'm all for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe we can do it over margaritas that time because, you know, this Zoom stuff. uh, Yeah, and then I can really get into the cheese of what happened. (laughs) I'd love to hear it. (laughs) All right, Ina, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Okay, bye. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Alamo Hour. Uh, again, thank you, Ina Harris, for joining us. Um, our wish list continues. We've added a new name of Joe Strauss. We think Joe would be great to get on the show at this point to talk about sort of what's going on in Austin, uh, how that affects local control, and how cities are struggling to sort of have a voice in the response to this uh, pandemic. Uh, Charles Butt, we'd love to get you on. Um, and always and forever, Coach Pop. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next episode. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alamo Hour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, Viva San Antonio.